How many of you at one time or another in your life have seen a coin on the street of the sidewalk and have stooped over to pick it up? Any of you found money in your life? How many of you have ever found any paper money? Actually found paper money lying around. I have. Got a stiff neck for the rest of the day, didn't you? All you did is go along the railroad track or the road with your neck, you know, your head down looking. I, I have dreamed. Have you had dreams of finding money? of unearthing, you know, sacks of treasure or money all over the place. It used to be an old story that some of the young married couples would tell about having a little time for privacy. And what they'd do is say, hey, kids, come here, and grab a handful of change like that and open up the screen door and throw it out in the deep grass. Close the door, and then Mom and Dad could have some time by themselves. There are an awful lot of funny stories about money, but you know, in one way, even though they say love is what makes the world go around, that's a little bit esoteric, and what the real facts are is a little bit different from that. Money is what makes this world go around. We find, even in the work of God, that we spend an awful lot of time being concerned with money. We have books in there, and those books very carefully calculate exactly how much money people send in here. We send out receipts. We have to keep records for the Internal Revenue Service. And all of us, every single day, certainly except the Sabbath, if we're in the business of earning a living, are dealing with money. I doubt if there's a person here in the room with the exception of some of the paupers or children among us who isn't either sitting on his wallet or a lady clutching her purse who has some money therein. Men have died for it, they've fought over it, they've coveted it, they've lusted for it, they've buried it. And by whatever term we speak of it, it is still money. In this country we call it the dollar. You know where that word came from? An ancient Germanic term from a valley in Germany called the Thaler, T-H-A-L-E-R, valley. And it was a medium of exchange that was used by those Germanic people and brought to the United States by some of the early immigrants, no doubt. And so we have what we call the Yankee dollar. If you go to other countries, you pick it up and it's, it looks kind of funny. You know, we call it funny money. Some of the strangest names imaginable. Pounds, Deutschmarks, Escudos, that's in Spain. Pesos, Lira, Rupees, Rand, Coronas, Pesetas, Piastres. That's a weird sounding name for money. Even something like Quetzales. You imagine that? There's a bird in one of the Central American countries, Honduras, that is called the Quetzal. And so Quetzales is the standard of exchange down there, money. Most of us never learned very much about money. It's, it's peculiar that in high school, or maybe in grade school, when we went through the check-writing class, remember that, the first time they showed you on the blackboard or in your little textbook a picture of a check, and they even tested you on how to make out a check, and all the rest of your life you've done it the same way. If you end up with a little bit of room to spare on the line where you write out in longhand the amount of money, you always draw a little squiggly line. You know why? That's to make sure people can't add something and, and, and behind that. You want to fill up all the space. And the teacher tells you, be sure to write beginning way over in the left-hand margin. You know, $67.55 and no 100 cents squiggle all the way to the end so nobody can cheat you. Well, it's funny that in school they taught us how to spend it, but they didn't really teach us an awful lot about how to make any money, except maybe in vocational school. But if I were to ask you today, what is, just give you a little pad here and we'll take a little test, what is the IMF? What fuels it? What makes it run? Who are the international bankers? And of course, by what decree 
does the government print money that is not backed up by any other substance such as gold or silver or anybody else's money, but merely prints it on a government printing press? If I were to ask what causes the prime rate to rise or to fall, and what is the Fed, and what act of Congress constituted the Fed which can actually dictate to the presidency of the United States and decide whether or not it is going to raise or lower interest rates and the prime rate being that rate that is offered by the big commercial and international banks for its preferred cu customers, meaning basically those other banks that have to borrow money, sometimes only for a few hours overnight. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about money and our attitude about money. Of course, the most famous scripture of all is in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, and I'll turn to that because it is much misunderstood. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, back just before the book of Hebrews, and it says as follows, For the love of money, you have to get an original on this, the companion Bible or perhaps one of the commentaries, is the root of all evil. Actually, it says the love of money is a root of all evils, plural, in the original Greek as the diaglot would show. The love of money, meaning the lust toward money, the covetousness of money, consciousness concentrating on, being overly concerned with money, is a root of all evils which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. And we know, of course, that one of the qualifications for a minister or a priest, a bishop, is to be a person who is not greedy, as it says, of filthy lucre. Now, looking up many of the scriptures this morning in preparation for this sermon, there are literally dozens and dozens of scriptures in the Bible that use the word money, and many others that use words like gold or silver or wealth or what have you. And surprisingly, some of the most important parables of Jesus Christ have to do with money. And I want to turn to a couple of those and read them and go through them with you a little bit today. Let's go to the 16th chapter of the book of Luke, first of all, beginning in verse 1. He said unto his disciples, this is a very, very difficult parable to understand. There are some almost direct contradictions to human nature in this parable that I would say you would not act in the way this wealthy man did. So there must be something here that is not immediately evident in the parable itself, or otherwise you couldn't understand the reaction of the man who found out he was being cheated. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. So someone was out to get the steward. We don't know whether the accusations were baseless or not. But the rich man was being informed that his secretary treasurer had been skimming a little bit, been ripping off the bank account. And so the Lord, the rich man, called him, the treasurer or the steward, and said, How is it that I hear this of thee? Now we're going to have an audit. Give an account of your stewardship, for you may be no longer steward. If I find discrepancies, you are going to be fired. So the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord takes away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. He was an educated man in finance, but he didn't know how to go out and work manually. So to beg, to stand out there with the beggars on the street, he would be ashamed. He couldn't do that. I am resolved what to do that when I am put out of my stewardship. He didn't doubt the outcome, but he thought before they get me, I'd better do something to ensure a nice, peaceful, easy transition into some other way of life. 
So when I'm put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. He'd like to have a little easier life than either digging or begging. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors, in original implies, even in the Greek, that he called them one by one privately, neither one knowing what the other's deal might be. And he said unto the first, How much do you owe unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Isn't it interesting some of the analogies that Jesus uses to show us a certain lesson? I've told you before in connection with the church that the church is a spiritual organism and not a political organization. That an analogy is not the truth. An analogy is not necessarily good. It is not necessarily righteous or honest. It is an analogy. It's over here somewhere. And you're looking at it the way you might look at an old used car or the Empire State Building. And you say, see it, there it is. And as you go through this analogy, you are learning certain points which you then apply over here to the truth. The analogy is not the truth. It is a story which helps you understand the truth on the other hand. Analogies break down. And I'm fascinated to find that Jesus Christ of Nazareth used many analogies in the Bible, like the unjust judge, and of course God the Father is not unjust, like the widow and her perseverance that kept after this sleepy old judge until finally he was just wearied with her constantly bothering him. And because of this, Jesus tells us we ought to pray and never to faint and to keep it up and keep it up. It doesn't mean that God gets irritated with us. It doesn't mean that God is only going to listen when we bother him. We are to learn a pure truth from sometimes a rather inadequate and sometimes even a false or a poor analogy. So here is a steward who was doing something completely dishonest. He is encouraging debtors to deliberately falsify records and to, through forgery, rewriting the figures, changing the bills of lading or the, the, the debt that is written down to a different figure. And so he said, take your bill, verse 6, and sit down quickly and write 50. And to another he said, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, take your bill and write fourscore, 80. Knock it off by 20%. And the Lord commended the unjust steward. Now, wait a minute. How do you figure that? Anybody come up with an idea? There ought to be some reason why the Lord would commend the unjust steward. Now, I toyed with that for a while. I kicked that around in my head, and I wondered about it. Obviously, here is a wealthy landowner. He is dealing in barter in various exchange having to do with the basics, the supplements of life, and it has to do with wheat and oil, which after all you can make into flour, as you housewives know. And therefore, he probably was quite a landowner, and he had an awful lot of customers. He had people who came to him to purchase or to barter and to exchange. As I kept musing on this, I thought, in what way did this nefarious clandestine activity of this dishonest steward who was trying to make sure he could be given a rather cushy job somewhere else in case he lost his own, benefit this great landowner. I thought, well, the only way I could see that it benefited him was maybe he was in trouble, maybe he was losing customers, maybe, as I begin to wonder from the example here, he had, he had irritated a lot of people because he was pretty mean and very exacting and really demanded payment right on time and wasn't very forgiving of certain debts. 
And maybe his business was gradually dwindling. I don't know that that is so, but I'm trying to find a rational cause as to why a landowner would congratulate a servant who had deliberately robbed him and caused people who owed him 100% to say they only owed him 80%. And the only thing I could come up with is it must have increased his business. Customers may have begun to flock to him. The word must have gone out about his generosity. Some of these people who were about to quit him must have come back. But in some way or another that is not evident in this parable, the Lord was benefited by the illegal activity of the steward. So the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. And then Jesus says, For the children of this age are in their generation wiser than the children of light. I have discovered in my own personal life that that is so. Now many of us, especially after we look at the wrong side of 50, can look back in our lives in today's inflated economy, in some of the deals we hear about in real estate, investments, in some of the money-making schemes we've run across. If we do a little dabbling here and there in investments, real estate, the stock market, we look back along our back trail, as I have done even when I was a teenager, and looked at the many, many things we could have done, the decisions we could have made if we'd had the knowledge then that we have now, which would have resulted in us being secure for life. I know of raw farmland in the area around Downey and Bell Gardens, California, that could have been purchased for less than $1,000 an acre, clear back in the middle 1940s, that is today solid Los Angeles, built-up city. I mean, a person just getting out of the Navy in those days with only a pittance in his pocket, which was all I had, had been well advised to buy at least an acre of land somewhere and hang on to it for 20 years. But we do not think when we are 19 or 20 or 25 in terms of 20 years. But then how quickly those 20 years go whizzing by and we look around and we say to ourselves those same old adages, those old proverbs they told us, a penny saved is a penny earned, and on and on and on, just went right over our heads. We never applied them. There are a lot of frustrated potential millionaires sitting in this room. A whole lot of you have had similar experiences involving properties, business decisions, but especially things such as homes and property. If I had had any sense at all of knowing what I could have done at the urging of the then business manager to purchase my own home in Pasadena, California, I would have been several hundreds of thousands of dollars better off with my children, perhaps set up with a trust fund, with a provision for my wife in case something happened to me. But instead, it's a whole different set of circumstances. So it's a very important thing, and believe it or not, a lot of people have a very wrong attitude toward money. We've heard an awful lot of the funny jokes about riches and about wealth and how the poor generally tend to put the rich down and the rich generally tend to look down upon the poor and vice versa and so on. But there's a great deal said about it in the Bible, and I think it's important to understand. In verse 9, it says, and I certainly agree with that when it says that the children of this world, of this age, of the mammon of unrighteousness, as we're going to read, are wiser than the children of light. That was certainly true in my case. And I say unto you, now Jesus is talking, he uses this analogy, which is an imperfect one, which has some elements that are hard to understand, to tell us, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. Now, the Bible very clearly shows, the companion Bible shows that word mammon means wealth. 
the wealth of unrighteousness of this world, that when it shall fail, Bullinger's Companion Bible agrees, and all manuscripts, I tell you, all manuscripts say it fail, meaning the, the economic system breaks down, meaning when the mammon fails, meaning when money fails, they, the people with whom you deal, people in business agreements and so on, in the commercial business of this world, may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Jesus now, by analogy again, showing that dealing with dollars and cents, dealing with money in a daily and a weekly basis in your own private life, is being honest and faithful in least. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Now, we've all heard that the best things in life are free. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says true riches. Money has been called many, many things. An awful lot of people have made a lot of funny jokes about money. I've certainly heard a lot of them. What is money? One said, it is a universal passport that can buy your way to anywhere. But I would have to add, except the kingdom of God. And they have said, it is a universal provider that can buy you anything. But I have had to add, except true friends, a happy marriage, good health, and real happiness. Money cannot buy those things. You know, we've heard the statement, money talks, but you're like me. The only thing it ever said to you was goodbye. It's the only sound it ever made. So it says that there are the faults of the unrighteous mammon and there are the true riches. Now, what is true wealth? A lot of you in this room have had a farming background. I was talking about this on the way in. Everything we get, everything we use, of course, comes out of the ground, whether we're talking about the building in which we sit, the clothing we wear, whether it's linen, flax, wool that comes from a height of sheep, whether it's orlon, dacron, uh, nylon, some of the synthetics that comes out of a petrochemical industry. Everything we use comes out of the ground. The only way in which man produces, and man really has nothing to do with it except getting in harmony with nature, real wealth or new wealth, the only way in which man brings into being wealth which was not here previously is by planting seed in the ground. He takes X number of bushels of wheat, puts it in the, in the field, and 10, 30, 100, whatever times that amount of wheat comes out of the soil. And man, by being in harmony, in partnership with God, is bringing into existence brand new wealth, edibles, foodstuffs that can serve both man and animals alike. Otherwise, there is no such thing as new gold. There is no new oil. There is nothing new in that sense of those materials that man uses. We are an earthbound creature made of the dust of this earth that have to live basic, basically on the ecosystem of all the living creatures, the animals, the plants, the insects around us. We live from what comes out of the ground. I have known a lot of multimillionaires. I know some that got that wealth in the wrong way. I've heard of people like that recently that I suspect are millionaires who probably got that money in a very illegitimate manner. One man, one of the most miserable men I guess I ever met, was named Mr. Hewlett C. Merritt. When he died, it was determined that his fortune was worth somewhere around $200 million. He was the owner of 47 separate corporations. 
Yet, when he was an elderly, old, miserly man, he would be seen journeying in his chauffeur-driven Cadillac down to the sleaziest parts of Los Angeles on Spring Street and Fifth Street, and going in and out of old, used, bargain-basement-type stores, buying lampshades and old shoes, and storing them in his mansion. He sued his own son at the law many years earlier, which so drove his son to distraction that his son took his own life. When his wife died, he had his wife buried in a solid silver casket. But early in the years of Ambassador College, prior to the purchase of his mansion, which later became Ambassador Hall, some of the early students, including Norman Smith and some of the others, were hired by Hewlett Merritt to go rake the leaves and uh, groom his gardens and grounds. I think he, he promised to pay them 45 cents an hour, as I recall, in those years back in about 1950, 51, somewhere in there. Well, they worked, I guess, for several weeks over there, but they can tell the story better than I because they remember it far better. He refused to pay them. I don't know why. They put in the hours of sweat, but the man just absolutely refused to pay them. Now, here was a man who was worth hundreds of millions of dollars, of an absolute fabulous fortune. This was a three-story building with a full basement and a swimming pool in the basement. Every room in that home was of a different, imported, fabulous hardwood from exotic and rare places, the Amazon and, and from Africa and from Philippines and so on. And each one of those rooms, whether it was rosewood or teakwood or some kind of burl or some kind of a fruitwood from a far-off land, was hand-carved and beautifully done. And in every room there was a fireplace of a different design. Sometimes brick, sometimes stone, sometimes a metal one that would, would raise and lower with its flue, with the chains and the counterweights and so on on the wall. Fabulous mansion, completed about 1905. It was so interesting when we finally bought that property, and in the process of modernizing it, going in and making sure that everything was proper, they dug down to take out some of the ancient old equipment that had to do with that swimming pool. And they assumed that that giant tank over against the wall in the deepest part of the basement had something to do with the swimming pool. But it didn't. It was hooked directly into the Pasadena water supply. So that for all of those years, Mr. Hewlett Merritt watered his grounds and supplied water to his home and his swimming pool without a meter. So that the Pasadena city didn't know anything at all about that water draining out of its lines. I thought it was fascinating. Here was a man that was so wealthy and so absolutely miserable. You know, you can tell of many cases like that. There are many people like J. Paul Getty, one of the wealthiest men in the world, who is reputed to have said that he would have given all of his millions for just one happy marriage, which you cannot buy with money. So Jesus talks about the true riches. Maybe we ought to understand what those true riches are. In verse 13, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and riches or mammon. I have known a lot of people who have absolutely been consumed by the desire to make money, by the desire to get ahead, by the desire to accumulate material, physical possession, burnt themselves out, ruined their lives. I know of compulsive gamblers. I've read stories about that recently and heard about people 
who literally are possessed of an illness that is not unlike a drug addict. That if they get anywhere close to a casino or something like that, they will literally lose the shirt off their back. I remember one time on the way to a hunting trip, we drove all night long. We got into Las Vegas in the wee hours of the morning, stopped into a service station, and we were going to buy gas and go on. We got to talking about the service station operator, about some of the people there that were coming through. And he said, where are you going? Well, we're going to Colorado, and we're, you know, obviously with all of our camping and hunting equipment. And he talked about, well, you better go on through to the other side, make sure you go on to St. George, Utah, not like some of these guys that don't make it past Las Vegas. I asked him what he meant. He said, oh, if you want to buy a hunting rig, if you want to buy a four-wheel drive vehicle or a Jeep, you want a good camper and some hunting outfits, he said, Las Vegas is the place to buy them. I said, what are you talking about? He said, because some of these guys come from L.A. and they don't make it any further than Las Vegas. I said, you mean to tell me that they come here and they start to gamble and they lose their rig? He said, they come here and they go back from their service station with a thumb out. Now, I'm, I had no reason to doubt his word. Now, that's bad. When you can't get through a city where legalized gambling is available without losing the shirt right off your back, it says something about character in there, the old American dream of finding the Brinks bag that rolled out of the back of the truck in the middle of the, of the, middle of the road or something like that, which a lot of people fantasize about, of getting something for nothing, of thinking that money literally answers all of their problems. Let's turn to Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Isaiah 55 and verse 1. You know, there's one proverb that seems to be a little bit contradictory to what we read about the love of money being a root of all evils. That's in Proverbs, or Ecclesiastes, I should say, 10.19, that says money answers all things. But it doesn't really, and you have to look at the context in which that was stated and realize that Solomon was looking at everything from man's point of view. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsts, come you to the waters, and he that has no money... Come you, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy. How are you going to do that? You that have no money, come and purchase. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Talking of coming to a source where you are going to purchase truth, but you're going to purchase the sustenance of life. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. One of my favorite statements over the years has been that I can only eat one steak at a time. I can't eat two steaks at a time. I can only drive one automobile at a time, so I don't need five or six or seven. I don't have a Ferrari and a Maserati and a whole lot of sports cars and just delight myself by going from one to the other and getting in and out of different flashy sports cars and driving around. I was talking on the way in about one of our number here who has perhaps greater wealth than many people and thinking about farming families who live out here in various parts of our country and certainly around here in the southeast of the United States, in Texas, Louisiana, and so on. I know of many, of many families, including some of the rather poor black families, living very close to the land, who grow practically all of their own food, who have very little in terms of money, and yet who are actually wealthy beyond belief when you compare them with people in Egypt, people in the Middle East, people in countries to which I have been, such as India and Bangladesh, people all around Africa, 
People in this United States of America, where you go by ramshackle, old, unpainted, clapboard homes, and out of the roof will be sticking a TV antenna, and you go in there, there's electricity to that old shack, and inside is a refrigerator, and there's a flushing toilet, and there's frozen meat and food in there, and they have indoor plumbing and water. And when you compare that with people overseas in many nations, these people that we think are poor are actually wealthy. It's hard for us to realize that we represent only 6% of the population of all of humankind and that we have far more than half of all of the wealth. If you measure wealth in terms of, of physical plant, of capital assets, of factories and plants, of the production of all of the commodities that we use, of the fact that we Americans drive far more than 50% of all automobiles on the face of the earth, that we are the most unbelievably wealthy human beings of any nation on earth. I tell you that one mile of even South Broadway in Tyler would look like the most glittering, fabulous capital city of practically any nation outside of the two democracies, the one that is rapidly going to be dismantled now that it's in a black minority government, but of South Africa and Zimbabwe or Rhodesia. And I include in that the city of Cairo, Egypt. We have things like sewers. We have curbs along the road. We have street cleaning machinery. We have electrical lines overhead and telephones that work. We have indoor plumbing that, that really flushes. A person in this nation is never more than a few minutes if he's sitting in his automobile and he's had a couple of cups of coffee or perhaps even a beer or a Dr. Pepper. He's going along the road. He's not too many minutes away from a place where he can say, I think I need to stop at a restroom. Try that in a few nations where I have been. You find yourself along the side of the road with the rest of them because there just aren't any such facilities. And we in this country have no concept of how absolutely wealthy we are unless and until we go to a country where they do not have it. I want to turn over to a couple of principles that Jesus Christ gave in some more of these parables, you might say. Matthew, the 13th chapter, gives us several of them. You'd be amazed if you look through an exhaustive concordance at how much the Bible has to say about the subject of money. In the 13th chapter of Matthew, beginning in verse 18, Hear you therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then comes the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. Now, he's talking here about the parable. I didn't read the entire parable that he told them earlier. This is he that receives seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed in his stony places, the same as he that hears the word and anon with joy, receives it. Yet has he not root in himself, but dures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that hears the word, and, of course, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, the care of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. What is it that can choke the word of God out of your mind? It is called the deceitfulness of riches or of wealth. I have known of people who have been very, very poor and have made it in this world and become very wealthy. I have seen staggering character changes. I once knew a man who was one of the mildest-mannered gentlemen I ever knew, a really meek man. Yet, when that man finally made his fortune, he turned into an absolute tyrant, a total character change, totally forgot 
about some of those who had actually helped him when he was down and out. How many times have I seen that? People who literally had to beg for a dime, and when they became wealthy, would turn their backs on the very person who gave them that dime when they were in desperate need. Conversely, do you know of any cases where a great wealthy man who had an awful lot of money and a lot of power lost it all and became very humble and very simple? Yes, I've even heard stories like that. It seems that the two go together. Well, here's a parable then about those who are among those of the seed that is planted in the soil, those who are Christians. But they receive the seed, they hear the word, they begin to understand it. But they're so involved in what is called the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. I knew at one point in time, even among the ministry in the church, of those who became very concerned about money. I'll tell you, wherever there is the opportunity for two things to mix, money and human nature, you better look out for dishonesty and thievery and people edging around to get their hands into the till and to steal from it. And of course, you know all of the stories, all the way to Congress, Abscam, you know about union pension funds and various stories such as some of the top union officials in this United States totally disappearing in their bodies, never even being found, such as Jimmy Hoffa. And we're just, we're just beleaguered with such stories about the goings-on even all the way up into high government positions. A little later on then, in verse 24, another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man that sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares. Oh, I don't think I want that one. I want to go along very quickly a little further on to the 44th verse of this chapter. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure. Notice that God likens the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, likened to treasure. I've often, you know, been fascinated by reading some of these stories about divers who have gone down. The most sensational one of the last year, I suppose, was the group who went down and actually cut their way into the Andrea Doria. And have they ever yet opened that safe? They kept saying they were going to do it right on live television. They were going to make a movie on it. But they went down to that great big ocean liner. And, of course, a lot of very wealthy people would have put their money in the safe for safekeeping. And they actually got that safe and brought it back to the surface, but they've never told us what was in it. I have seen in National Geographic beautiful treasure troves of people who have discovered ancient old Spanish galleons off the Gulf Coast and off the coast of Florida and have gone down with dredges and actually recovered a great deal of that treasure. Now, they say you can't take it with you. Some people have tried, like Tutankhamun, for example, one of the famous young kings or pharaohs of Egypt. And today, hundreds of thousands of people, and it was in Dallas for a while, and of course in Europe and New York, have filed by to see all the gold and the incredible amount of money that was buried with those men who literally tried to take it with them. A treasure would be a fabulous thing to find. Has your mind ever toyed with the idea of buying one of these metal detectors? And going out here somewhere and finding an old abandoned barnyard or a farm or something and having your metal detector kind of indicate that there's some metal there and digging down and finding a strong box that some crook way back a century ago or so buried in the soil. Where I have hunted for the last 21 or two years, we've heard many, many interesting stories, one of which is how Diamond Mountain got its name. 
of how a couple of British people went up there, and I've read the actual documented story of that. Mr. Curtis told me about it many, many years ago, and salted certain areas with real rough, uncut diamonds, and then went to San Francisco, and I guess lined up literally millions and millions of dollars in terms of bankers and other people who wanted to back a mining operation to go up there to Diamond Mountain in the extreme northwestern corner of Colorado and mine those diamonds. There aren't any diamonds of the same quality that there are in South Africa, for example, in the United States. But there were also stories about some of the most famous robbers in the world. And one of the stories Walt told us that always made me want to go get a metal detector was of... I believe it was the Sundance Kid and the other guy that was supposed to have ridden with him made their escape along the old outlaw trail toward the hole in the wall. And Brown's Hole was a part of that outlaw trail, or Brown's Park, up in northwestern Colorado. And allegedly, they were trying to escape the sheriff up at Rock Springs, and they rode right through Irish Canyon, and they jettisoned their great big bag of gold because it was too heavy. Now, I'm not sure I believe that story at all. I would have put that in the deepest wedge of rocks or wherever I could have buried it or something. But the story was that they threw it in this lake. But now, of course, many, many decades later, the lake had all but dried up. And that every now and then, someone would come upon a coin out there. Makes an interesting story over a campfire. Whether there's any truth to it or not, I couldn't say. But perhaps you too have had the idea of someday discovering an old sunken galleon or being a spelunker in a cave, coming across a fabulous sack of gold or a fortune that someone buried. The Bible gives the analogy that the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, which when a man has found, he hides, and that's exactly what you would want to do, rebury it, hide it, and then with joy go out and sell everything you've got to hang on to that treasure. Can you imagine how fascinating that would be? to literally have that metal detector and to find an old Wells Fargo strong box and in it would be solid gold coins, so heavy you couldn't even pick it up. We were hunting in southern Colorado a couple of years ago and there was a man we met who had been hunting along this same river, along the Animas River Canyon there, and he saw a gleam of yellow in a kind of a cut bank there of the river with a lot of conglomerate and a lot of rocks and dust and dirt. And he dug, it was partially buried from an old earlier flood that had deposited there in the river apparently, and found it was a metal capsule like a shell in two parts. And he pulled it apart and out came a gold certificate written from the federal government in Washington, D.C. in something like 1840-something for one million dollars. True. They got to searching back in the government archives and found out that there were five of those on a particular mule train that was headed down to Mexico to purchase some of these huge big Mexican land grants in the southern, the southwestern part of the United States. This happened only about, what, three years ago? I think... Uh, Larry, you were there, and we, about three years ago we heard about that man finding that. Now, the paper wrote it up, and of course uh, he didn't expect to ever get anything out of it. He lived very poorly in a little tiny town right there and hunted in that area every single year. And of course the government today would not make good on a government note clear back in the 1840s anyway. But it was a fascinating story. And of course, again, it makes you realize what would happen to you if you found a treasure, a literal treasure, like you open up a chest and there were double hands full of diamonds and rubies and emeralds and gold coins and silver coin, what would you do? 
I think I can, I can understand this analogy. I'd go out and I'd put my house up for sale. I'd even come down several thousand dollars to make sure that it sold quickly. I'd sell my truck. I would sell everything I've got. I'd sell my gun collection. I would raise as much capital as I had to, and if I had to, I'd go borrow some money somewhere, even if I had to let somebody else in on the idea but keep from, from him the knowledge as to where it was buried, and do everything I possibly could. I would give up everything to get so much more than all of my current material possessions are worth. Now apply that to the kingdom of God and see if we really are that willing when it comes to something that to a lot of people is rather vague, rather spiritual, rather off in the future somewhere. Are we literally, with the Apostle Paul, the kind of people who say, I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Jesus Christ? He said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man is found, he hides, and for joy thereof, goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You know, that's happened rarely. I have been a couple of times to some of the big uh, fantastic concessions. I don't think they have anything like that at Six Flags, but they do out in Southern California, and they do in Hawaii, where they have genuine pearl divers that you go down, and it's a big tank as big as this room or so. They actually dump oysters from the ocean floor in there, and these Japanese girls will take a basket. You buy the basket for whatever, $10 or whatever, and you hand them the basket. And then you watch them dive in. They go down 20 or 30 feet, and you can actually see them around on the floor of this area. And they scoop up an oyster, and they put it in the basket, and they bring it back. And then you take your basket to a man over there at a shelf. Any of you ever done this and bought a pearl in advance? And then you see him open it up with a knife and go in there, and sure enough, you don't know how big it's going to be. And then, of course, they really got you hooked because then they'll sell you a little gold chain and they'll put that little pearl on the end of the gold chain and a little certificate that says where it came from and so on. But I bought one for my wife like that. And when we found it, it was of unusually big size. It was far bigger than the average, he told me, and I actually made money on the deal. He told me my pearl was worth a good bit more than I actually paid for it. It was fascinating. The only time that we ever bought a pearl before we saw it. But here... If someone were to open an oyster, and out would come a pearl about as big as a great big marble, and it would be an absolutely flawless color, that would be worth, I guess, tens of thousands of dollars. And so by analogy, he says that's the way the kingdom of God is, like a man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You know that money is mentioned so early in the Bible, clear back in the 14th chapter of Genesis, about the paying of tithes to Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, or the high priest of God, on the part of Abraham. And that tithing was a direct acknowledgement as to the source of all wealth. I want you to think even about the Ten Commandments briefly, and how many of them have to do with money. You might not have thought of it this way. What about the one that says, Thou shalt not covet? And then it lists all of the things that a person might covet. But it lists animals, houses, material possessions of one's neighbor. What about when it says, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the eternal thy God. 
six days to do all of our work by which we are blessed with increase that God Almighty gives us. Actually, there is so much in the Old Testament about tithing and about material possessions. A great deal in the law has to do with how to settle debts, about letting servants go free, about the year of release, about the jubilee, very severe penalties for removing landmarks and for having scams involving property, about paying usury, lending, and interest, about restoring twofold or fivefold when you steal something, and of course especially about tithing and giving God offerings. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 9th chapter, and let's just be honest with this scripture for a minute and ask ourselves, what is the Apostle Paul talking about? What is the subject he is trying so gently to get across to the Corinthian church? I've asked time and again, is there room in the New Testament church of God today for a Corinthian congregation? To some people in a church organization, they would say, absolutely not. We will put them out. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't have that attitude. The Corinthian congregation was wrong. They had some very wrong attitudes. They had a wrong spirit toward the Apostle Paul. They were guilty of drunkenness at the Passover. They were suspicious of the Apostle. They had a lot of personal sins that were beleaguering and, and uh, holding them back. He went on to begin to defend himself to them. Chapter 9, verse 1, Am I not an Apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you, for the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. My answer to them that do examine me, they were suspicious of Paul and his motives, is this. Now what was the reason for their suspicion? What are you dealing with in this chapter? My answer to those that examine me, examine him about what? He said, Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power or authority to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord? And Cephas, notice, the brethren of the Lord, James and Jude, are, it says here in the Bible, married. And it says Cephas, or Cephas, meaning Peter, was also married. And that it cost extra money to take those women with them as they traveled. Or I only and Barnabas have we not the power to forbear working. Who goes a warfare any time at his own charges or at his own expense? What soldier is supposed to pay for uh, an M16 or an AK-47, for a helmet, for a flak jacket, for boots and a uniform, for a gas mask, and for all the ammunition which would cost him thousands and thousands of dollars? What soldier could afford a, an F-16? It costs something like 30 or whatever million dollars a copy, or a, or a pilot in that case. Or what about some of the modern ships that cost up into the hundreds of millions of dollars? Who goes to warfare any time at his own charges? Who plants a vineyard and eats not of the fruit thereof? Does that make any sense? You grow your garden, and you're not supposed to eat the vegetables that grow in your own backyard. Who feeds a flock and eats not the milk of the flock? If you've got a herd of cattle, you feed the cattle. Shouldn't you receive the milk? That doesn't mean you're butchering the cattle. That means you're actually just benefiting a little bit from what the cattle produce. Do I say these things as a man? Is this carnal reasoning? Or says not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. Does God take care for oxen? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes no doubt this is written, that he that plows should plow in hope, and that he that threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. 
If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power or authority over you, are not we rather? Notice the force of that verse. They were tithing. Someone, very likely the local pastors of the Corinthian church, were partakers of that power of reaping carnal things. Probably in that day of barter, in that agrarian society that had to do with fruits and vegetables and grains and meat and foodstuffs. It had to do with leather and fabrics and things of that nature. And not necessarily always a medium of exchange such as money. But it's very clear in that verse that the Corinthian church was definitely allowing their carnal or material things to be spent for those who were their spiritual leaders. But Paul, they withheld. Paul, they, they held back. Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. He went on then to say, finally, in verse 14, Even so the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel, but I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. Then he went on to say in verse 17 that he did this thing willingly, and that his reward was that he would make the gospel without charge. It is so obvious that the intent and the thrust of 1 Corinthians 9 was tithing and giving and that the salubrious and happy outcome of his gentle urging to the Corinthian church would have, been, would have been that they got over their suspicion and they began also to give to the Apostle Paul. I want to turn now back to the scripture you knew was probably coming in the book of Malachi, back toward the end of the Old Testament. And in the third chapter, and beginning to read in verse 8, and then I want to tell you something that has to do with a question people have asked me about third tithe. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, wherein have we robbed thee? And the answer comes back, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and test me, or prove me now herewith, says the Eternal of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer, and that has to do with insects and with crop plagues for your sake. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. You've heard about the med fly, and recently the other day there was an article about the mex fly, and the California fruit industry that is something like $42 billion strong is in serious jeopardy from the possibility of these plagues and pests which could be really devastating if it gets out of hand. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the Eternal of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, says the Eternal of hosts. To me, people who do not see that Almighty God requires the first tenth of our increase are people who basically deny the existence of God. They do not believe God has anything to do with that grain of wheat germinating and producing a stalk of wheat and many times its original investment. They do not believe that God Almighty has to do with the production of cattle and started the process that man cannot make a young calf in a laboratory but has to carefully and selectfully breed cattle, that cattle only come from cattle, that farmers 
And whether you're talking of dry land farming in the Great Plains states, or you're talking about the Corn Belt, or you're talking about people who grow the staples with which they trade with other nations like corn and wheat and soybeans and oil, you're still talking of those who produce new wealth out of the soil. People who live in cities, who go to supermarkets to buy their little sack of groceries for about $65 for just a little bit of an armload that they can carry, who drink their milk out of plastic cartons, who eat their food from frozen and canned sources and prepared and packaged and processed foods, lose sight of where all of that really comes from. To me, someone who would deny that Almighty God is the provider and the sustainer of human life is denying the existence of God. And someone who tries to argue over the tithing and the giving principle is totally rejecting all that Jesus says, not only the parables where he uses money to even illustrate the kingdom of God, but his own statement about those who are to give generously and the fact that this is the law of God. And he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says right here, I change not, therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed. Two verses above that in verse 6. I have never had any problem with the tithing question from the time that I first had it proved to me and I proved it and reproved it and studied it and looked up every nuance of every conceivable scripture on it over and over again. But someone asked me recently, well, on the telephone, do we still believe in and practice third tithing? I told them no. And I said that actually in the worldwide church just prior to the fateful day in 1978, it was commonly being understood that in some nations such as Australia and the total welfare states of Norway, of Sweden, and of Denmark, and especially in England where it's more and more that way, where the government taxation can be up to 70, 80, and 90 percent, where in England, for example, if you have a toothache, you go to a state-subsidized doctor, which is why they've had such a, a flight of dentists and doctors out of England who make a certain static amount of money, but they can come to the United States. We have them right here in Tyler. I know a couple of doctors that golf out there that have British accents. They had quite a, a drain in England of professional people because they were locked in to a certain amount of money because of socialized medicine. Where over here, some of the highly paid people in our society are doctors and dentists and lawyers and so on. So we understood that the government had preempted that function of what was once a theocracy. And remember that in the days of the theocracy of Israel, there was not a separate government that came along and required income tax and excise tax and state and county and school board tax. There was only one tax, and that was the tithe. And that if we figured it that way today, if 10% of the GNP of the United States of America were to be contributed to education, you can even discount for a moment the church and just say education. Look at the enormous amount of money that would be available to support our schools, to educate our children, and the difference there would be. Not a minuscule fraction of that amount of money is spent for what it should be spent. Now today you have all of these social welfare programs. You've got all the various government at the federal, the county, the state, and the city level where people can find help. You have all kinds of charitable organizations, including even such things as the YMCA and the Salvation Army. Literally, because of the fact of that preemption of the third tithing system in our nation, which is so wealthy, 
There is no reason for any person with food stamps, with pensions, with various charitable organizations and governmental handouts to be starving. But over and above that, there is still the requirement on the church of God to care for its own. But to be locked into a legalistic, ritualistic every third year, which was based upon the Jubilee, and is not based upon the calendar that we use today, 10% of the income of people who are already taxed far beyond that amount by the federal government for doing the same thing is double taxation and is double and triple tithing. It is not required. There is no mention whatsoever after and so long as the temple stood when the New Testament ministry of Jesus Christ of Nazareth had the responsibility to look after the widows of the church. It said very clearly in the pastoral epistles, if any man has a widow, let them support them, that the church be not charged. That did not presuppose that the church had a great offering or a great collection that it took up and that it provided for widows aside from the responsibility of a man who was a wage earner that had a widow as a mother or a widow as an elderly sister. He was responsible for providing for her, and then, if there was any lack, the church had to make up the difference. I need to perhaps write an article on that so people can understand it. But no, we do not check up on tithing. We do definitely believe it. We obey it. We practice it. We follow it. And we are free to preach it. The Apostle Paul was preaching it. He was writing it. But he did not put out from the church, anyone in Corinth who simply didn't see, didn't agree, or didn't go along with what he said. But I wanted to give you a little bit of background on the whole subject of money. I think with that, that I will collect my money that I threw on the floor with the help of some of you kids after church and sit down. <laughs>